namo tassa pakavato arhato samma samputassa namo tassa pakavato arhato samma samputassa namo tassa pakavato arhato samma samputassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami Barnes, can you hear me? Sounds good, huh? Okay. So the OBS have organized these monthly gatherings on teachings based around the four foundations of mindfulness. And so I always have to remind everyone the context of that teaching. Um, as I always say, it's, it's good to do some formal study on the the basic structures of, of Buddhist practice and then to try to engage those concepts in a contemplative, meditative way. So it's not just knowledge, but there is knowledge. So having no uh, no teaching, no structure, then why have Buddhism? But only having knowledge and just kind of believing in it or doing it like you do a kind of Buddhism 101 paper where it's just a bunch of ideas, that's also not going to liberate the mind. So the skill of using intellect, but also using this this wise contemplative um, faculty that we have. Not only can I say, um, say I can be talking with someone and they can be talking, 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 and I start to get annoyed. Not only can I feel annoyed, but I can... No, I'm feeling annoyed. Right? If I didn't have that, I'd be toast. I'd just be annoyed all the time or whatever. So so we have this faculty of reflection. We have this this wonderful, you know, wonderful ability not only to feel the moods of the mind, but also to know we're feeling the moods of the mind. And that's where freedom lies. It's that capacity to um, to know our inner world objectively rather than be the subject of all these different changing moods that come and go and uh, enslave us, really, if we can't awaken to them. So the context of the, the that Four Noble Truths teaching, I mean, the, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is the Four Noble Truths, and that is the, that's the model or the paradigm or the kind of basic template of Theravada Buddhism, which you should learn if you're going to have a, a clear intellectual framework through which you can contemplate. So Four Noble Truths are very important, and, and we say that all the other teachings can fall within that. So again, Four Noble Truths is the, the first Noble Truth is there's discontent. Um, but that discontent is ennobling. It's a noble truth if you contemplate it and take it deeply to the end of discontent. That's why it's ennobling. It's just a hassle if you don't contemplate it. But it's ennobling because it awakens us. Uh, and it and there is a cause for our discontent, and that, discontent, that cause is attachment to craving. And craving is a technical word, but it's basically not having what I want and wanting what I don't have, roughly speaking. Yeah? And attachment to that craving keeps us very restless. And the third noble truth is that there's an end. There's a cessation to discontent. And that comes about through the abandonment of craving, through the letting go. And the fourth noble truth, there's a path, right understanding, right attitude or right thinking, right speech, right action, right mindfulness, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, 
right mindfulness and right concentration. Right, 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 right. Eight times. But not right in a dogmatic way. And it's right and something else is wrong. It's trouble with the word right. It sounds absolutist. But, but it's right in a sense it does liberate your mind. So it, it, uh, uh, it's right and the, the focus uh, liberates your mind. So within that path, the, the right, right understanding is central. If I make effort, so we, we're talking about sati, sati is right mindfulness. Right mindfulness implies some kind of wisdom. It's not just a focused attention in a way, like let's say mindfulness, you could say you know, a hockey player is probably very mindful, but he's trying to destroy the other guy, <laughs> right? So he's very focused. He's got a lot of samadhi and he's very present and so on, but it's not necessarily wise. Um, so, so right understanding is very central always to any kind of, of, of Buddhist contemplation. And, and the problem of discontent, we would say, is ignorance. We don't understand. That's, that's why there's discontent. It's not, there's nothing wrong with us. So there's no kind of primal evil or um, something wrong with us. It's just when we don't understand, we make mistakes, we suffer. So then uh, right mindfulness is, is, is pointing to um, the, the capacity to awake. Right? We all have the capacity to, to be awake to the way things are. Um, and the four foundations of mindfulness, again, we went through this, but the first foundation is body, and that's part of the uh, this incarnation. We better figure out what this body's about. If we just react to it all, we're going to suffer a lot, especially as we get older. Uh, so the body is something we need to understand because we're incarnate in it. Uh, feelings, vedana, and vedana is the sense of being attracted to or repelled by, and that's a given. And you like this, the temperature is very attractive right now, right? When we were here last time, it was very hot, wasn't it? It's kind of roasting, and my head felt like I was being fried. That was unattractive. And, and sense experience, body, mind, always has that in it. You can't get away from that. Can't get and there's a range. It can be very, very attractive or very repulsive or sort of ho-hum in the middle. It's always changing and shifting. And again, if we're not aware of that and we simply react all the time, then we're we're like monkeys, <laughs> just reacting all the time. Um, and then jitta, jitta, the, the translation of the word jitta is mind. And mind sounds like it's a fixed entity, like a, a lump of brain. But really, what is, it's pointing to more the moods of the mind. It's the way we talk about it. The changing inner atmosphere, inner weather that we all experience. So, a mood of of happiness, a mood of unhappiness, a mood of wanting to be here, a mood of not wanting to be here, a mood of being um, interested in something, a mood of being bored by something, and so on and so on. So we have, we have a, not only we, do we have a, a, a sense experience uh, based upon the outer world and the outer senses, we have an inner sense too, obviously, we have mind. So the moods of the mind. Huh? And what Buddhist teaching is trying to get us to do is to awaken to the moods of minds in a way we get beyond, where, we, where we're no longer taking it personally, we're no longer caught in the narrative, we're no longer caught in the storyline. We see them objectively. And we all know that, don't we? I mean, this, one, of, one of the very good things in Western culture now is we say, don't go to the storyline. And that's quite commonplace, and that's very healthy. Don't just grab the storyline. Look at the underlying mood of the mind. Um, 
And if you if if we get a hold of that, get a hold of that, then we 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 make a huge step towards freedom, huge step, isn't it? You know, you think about when before you started mindfulness practice and you believed in your loves and your hates, we're just like like victims. Something beautiful comes along, oh, I want it, I want it. Something ugly, I don't want it, I don't want it. We're just kind of victims of life. So this is so important. This, this, you imagine if the whole world just woke up to the bad moods they're in <laughs> and didn't follow them, we'd be in good shape. Um, so terribly important, terribly important. Uh, the, so the way the, the, that um, text is then maps it out, is, it's a, it maps it out in a kind of um, polar way. It says that, that um, the, the contemplative knows the, the lustful mind is lustful or the unlustful mind is unlustful. So uh, lust is a strong word. Lusting after a new iPod Pro or whatever they are or lusting after a new frock or... <laughs> Uh, a new type of tent. <laughs> but there is desire, right? Yeah. And and so, just to know that, like, maybe, like, the, the, the lustful mind, the greedy mind, what it experiences a lot is, is, is things like jealousy. You know, a person who, who doesn't want much doesn't tend to feel jealous because they don't want it. A person who is very, like, let's say you get someone, someone who was describing a person they met recently who collects pens. Don't, don't know. There's conventions, pen <coughs> conventions. <laughs> it's true. So this person collects pens. You know, green pens, red pens, fountain pens, ballpoint pens, pencil pens, a lot, and seems to have a lot of money. It goes to pen conventions. Um, got all his pens stolen. Felt very depressed, like he lost his baby. Then bought some more pens. <laughs> then got insurance. That's called the lustful mind. <laughs> now you imagine, if he comes to the monastery and I have a better pen collection than him, what's he going to feel like? He said, that's not fair. He's not going to feel happy. He might say, oh, you've got a lovely pen collection. But what he's going to say is, bloody hell, he's a monk and he's got a better collection than me. He's going to feel jealous, envious. All those mind states will come up on it. Someone who's not collecting pens will think I'm an idiot for collecting pens. I <laughs> just say, what are you doing with all these pens? So there is a price to pay for a, mo- for a person who's not aware of the greed in the mind. Now, greed's not wrong. Um, we need greed for eating food. We need certain kind of physical greed to, to make a good environment. Right? I want I want a warm environment when I'm cold. I want clothing. So there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the not understanding it, the attachment to it, and then being simply led by the nose and victimized by it. So the, the, the teaching is just asking us, well, know the greedy mind as the greedy mind. And that, well, the, the beauty of that is not saying you shouldn't be greedy. Just know the greedy mind is the greedy mind and know the not greedy mind as the not greedy mind. If you notice, if you just start to notice, you say the not greedy mind is actually much nicer, much more peaceful, much more end of suffering, uh, much more content. 
and you taste that, you taste, oh, contentment feels this way. And then, ah, look at that pen. <laughs> you imagine what our friend does on the internet now. You, you, I mean, you could go crazy looking for pens, I'm sure. <laughs> so then our friend looks in the internet and sees a golden pen, and he awakens to the feeling of wanting the golden pen. He knows a greedy mind is a greedy mind, right? And he almost presses the buy button, but he doesn't do it. He now practices restraint. And after five minutes, he realizes the mistake and he presses the buy button. (laughs) But (laughs) at least for five minutes, he's been aware. He's been aware, this is a greedy mind. And this is the nature of these things. I like to kind of portray these things as quite humorous, but sometimes they're very compelling, compelling energies. So first and foremost, if I don't wake up to the mood of the mind, if I don't know it, then there's no practice. I have to know what it is. Waking up to a greed mind is not a judgment. That's different too. Like, I shouldn't be greedy. It's wrong to be greedy. No, there are just consequences to attaching to the greed mind. So our friend then decides, this is silly. Ten ten years uh, obsessed about pens, and he decides to give his pens away. Ah, So what does he do? Takes the cheapest one first. (laughs) Right? It's a little big ballpoint that he doesn't really like. But at least he gives it away. Now his mind has a different mood. It's non-greed. It's non-greed. Right? And eventually he gives them all away and he's happy, he's enlightened. <laughs> That'd be nice. But you can see that not only can we know moods of the mind, we can shift moods of the mind, can't we? But we have to shift the moods of the mind skillfully, not repressively. I can I can feel terribly guilty about wanting something and then just do something to get rid of that wanting. But that's not mindfulness. So the first requirement of this teaching is that I'm just honest. I'm just fully conscious that this is what the mood is presenting. Say if I'm feeling bored and uh, and I don't look at the boredom and I just absorb into some media and then I feel bored again and absorb into another form of media, then I never look at boredom and I'm never liberated from boredom. I get media might kind of fill up gap or space, but I don't really get any peace. But then I just consciously stop. I stop all that externalizing and going towards things, I, and I finally say, "Ah, oh, boredom is this way." And then, and then I then I have a choice. I have a choice. Do I really want to look at television? Do I really want to read a magazine? Do I really want to look at YouTube? Or maybe I'll just watch boredom for a while. And that's more difficult. But a few people do that. Why? Why look at that? But meditators were doing that all the time. We're sitting here and watching boredom quite often. But what's the result of that? What's the result? Well, boredom comes up, say, and then boredom conditions the greed mind, right? And then the greed mind looks for an object. Now we're no longer looking for an object to get rid of the boredom. We're aware of the boredom, and that's when desire comes in. That's when craving comes in. Craving arises with that unpleasantness of boredom. Stays there for a while. And you watch it, you watch it, and then you realize the boredom ends, and you realize the third noble truth, the end of suffering without another pen. Right? Without the pen. And that's liberation. You can put an end to the boredom by getting another pen, but you won't put an end to suffering that way. You'll just have a bigger collection and more insurance. And so, so this is very important to, 
to reach the end of suffering, quite often you have to suffer. <laughs> to reach the end of suffering, some, quite often you have to be very patient with the, the habitual compensations that we use to get away from suffering. So, the pen guy, his habitual compensation is to get on eBay, or what are they, Kikiji, what's it called? Kijiji, right? And, you know, I, I've heard that online shopping can take hours. <laughs> <laughs> and it's quite, you know, it's quite exhilarating, probably, huh? Woo, yeah, woo, woo. So you spend, he spends two hours having fun. Having fun. He presses the buy button. Pen comes to him through Amazon. What's the first feeling? Usually disappointment. Ah, should have got the green one. What's that? That's called shoppers. What's it? There's a word for that. Buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it's facile. It's funny, but it's true. It's true, isn't it? And that's the, someone who is just a, a victim to consumerism and so on. But to then notice the mind, which is not to have a contented mind, is quite difficult. If, like for that person. You know, they build up this momentum of, of wanting, wanting. It's very hard for them to stop. Someone else who doesn't have that propensity towards collecting objects to, to be, a, they're called collectors, I suppose. Huh? Yeah. Another person has it much easier. They can be with nature. They can be with the sound of the wind. Uh, just with ordinary things and be quite peaceful. So it depends. It rather depends. But to notice the greed mind as the greed mind, and to notice the non-greed mind as the non-greed mind. To notice those moments where you don't want anything. What's good enough? Just, like quite often just coming in, waiting for the, a talk, a Dhamma talk, a Dhamma session. Quite often we're kind of waiting for something to happen. But oftentimes we're not. It's just nice to be doing nothing. Just being here, looking at the others. And, and just notice that, that mind which is, it doesn't have to absorb into an experience or get anything. It's just present. Very lovely, very, very present, very lovely. So to know the greed mind is a greed mind, the non-greed mind is a non-greed mind. Then if, if so having noticed that, not then one starts to make intentions, well, you know, this whole thing around pens and obsession, I've got to work with that. And then we start working with it. So maybe the person, you know, needs to obsess because they have a lot of depression. And the way they get out of depression is constantly shopping online. Difficult. Difficult, difficult change. But then at least, at least the person says, oh, this is depression. So sometimes you, you take a layer of greed away and you got a layer of fear. Right? Layers. And then you see the fear and you go, whoa, where did that come from? I remember for myself, I, 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 I think, sort of so many years ago, my first year of meditation, I said I had no fear. I had anger, no fear. Well, a year later, I had a lot of fear. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Because I was looking at the anger. I was looking at the anger, and underneath the anger, there was a lot of fear. Ah, I see. So, well, whatever the layers present themselves, this works. It's not that you just notice greed, and all of a sudden, okay, I'm, I'm an arahant now. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's, it takes a lot of patience, and a lot of honesty. But the more one does that, one notices the mood of the mind, the more one sees that the refuge is in awareness. Awareness of change, rather than in the pursuit of that particular mood. And, and that's a kind of objective sense. And there's a more and more um, trust in awareness. 
more and more like the Barmese around being patient. This will change. Uh, this is Kamma. These ideas are very, very helpful. This is Kamma. So if my friend, the pen collector, after 10 years of pen collecting and losing two collections of pens, finally he's going to start his third collection, finally says, no, nah, this, is, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. Everyone else says it. He feels like an idiot. He says, I will not collect pens. What's the first thing you want? Is to collect pens. So it works, right? He might say it to himself, no pens, no pens. But as soon as he gets bored, probably his first reaction will be penmanship. <laughs> right? So even though this is, this is the frustrating piece of, of, of our practice, even though we understand, even though we have good intentions, sometimes the push of these energies is bigger than our own intentions. So you have to be very kind to yourself. Be very compassionate to yourself. But determined. But determined. You're really determined that now this is this is not a good way to go. It doesn't bring me happiness or anyone else. So time and time again you fall into the same pitfalls. But if you keep trying, you keep trying, slowly the mindfulness gets stronger, uh, wisdom gets stronger, and these defilements of mind become weaker. And you And, you know, some some of the karma that we have, we, sometimes you don't know where it comes from. Where's that coming from? Why is that like that? But you don't know. But all you know is you can be aware of it as change. So the greed mind is the greed mind, and then the same for the anger mind is the anger mind, same kind of thing. Um, and the anger mind can be very um, clever. You know, one can... It doesn't have to be full-out punch-in-the-face anger. You know, it can be just more subtle criticizing everyone all the time, anger. He's wrong, he's wrong, she's wrong. Too big, too small. No good, not good. No, 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 no. Constant judging you quite often towards yourself. Not good. Nope, didn't do it right. Nope, sorry. Nope, thumbs down. Can't do it. Just constant, constant aversion. Constant criticism. Constant, uh, it's not right. Constant needing to fix it. And it can be so pervasive that it seems like, well, that's the only truth there is. This is reality. And all it is is thought, driven by emotion. So the anger mind, the anger mind. So the anger mind um, uh, doesn't do forgiveness very well, doesn't do joy very well, uh, doesn't do tolerance very well, what else? No, you can you can think of your own, right? Yeah. So you can see there are always ramifications of these what we call defiled states of mind. They then create a kind of personality which interacts in the world which is not pleasant, not nice. Then the trouble with anger is quite often we compound it by being angry at the anger. So we become critical of the criticism, we become averse to the aversion. And that doesn't work either because if you think how the mind works, the mind is working in a momentum of stimulations coming from intention. A momentum of stimulations coming from intention. So I, I intend, my intentions arise from habit, from conditioning, and the intentions then inform the way I act, I think, and I speak, right? So if for some reason I've, I'm raised in an environment where... Um, Maybe I had to be critical just to survive, right? I had to have anger just to survive. And then I start looking at that. Then all my, my intentions are much driven by 
criticism or fear or whatever. And they're, they're, they're governing what I do. And that's karma. I'm the heir to my karma, born of my karma, abide supported by my kamma, whatever kamma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Now quite often we read that as some kind of past life, but it really it's just where you can really see it is if I've, if I've cultivated inadvertently, maybe you know I, I didn't have understanding, but I still got to pay the price, inadvertently I've cultivated a constant criticism of life or myself. I mean, I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating, but a constant criticism of life. Then that, each time I do that, that creates more of that possibility and that um, habit, inclination in the future. I'm the heir to my kama, born of my kama. So our friend with the pens, he, he follows greed, then he tends to follow greed in the future. I have aversion. I tend to follow aversion. That's why it's so hard. This practice to, to really break out from these patterns because they're so they're, they've been so conditioned into our minds from, the way we've thought and our intentions. So, but what we can do is is be very very careful of our our intentions. So if, if perhaps say, talking about aversion, I just get, um, you know, I get a, a annoyed at someone because of something they've said to me. And that annoyance arises. Well, that arising of annoyance, I would say that's kamma. That's the resultant of the way my mind has been conditioned. But can I be mindful enough to notice that and just wait it out and not create more aversion out of that, either hating myself or believing in it with a storyline? And so the practice is always one of, in any given moment, there is intention. All in Buddhist Psychology, we say, each mind moment has intention inherent in it. Good, indifferent, or bad. Always has intention. All thinking is intentional. Now that maybe not might make, make sense to us, but it is, it is driven by a certain attitude. So heedlessness, I might not understand, but I still have to pay the price. So you could say, well, I didn't really intend to think angry thoughts. Yeah, but the thinking of angry thoughts begets angry thoughts. So, in any given moment, there is a possibility of awakening to how things are and then trying to establish intentions which liberate the mind. And the intentions which liberate the mind, in the case of anger, is non-anger. So, if I can feel anger and not be angry at the anger, that's non-anger. If I can feel criticism and not be heavy on myself about that criticism, I can, oh, yes, this is a critical mind. Just that. This is critical mind. This is an angry mind. And then I sense that, yeah, the knowing is not anger. The knowing is not critical. It includes that. It knows it, but doesn't get lost in it. And then those times when we're not critical or angry or averse, just to know that, to know that when you know there's nothing in- impacting you that is annoying or whatever, and you're just very neutral. And know that, know that. This is non-anger. Get to know that, especially... In, in, in a person, say, that has a lot of greed, no non-greed. Has a lot of anger, no non-anger. Really kind of get a feeling for that. Because if you can get a feeling for that, you'll notice, the, in this case, the arising of anger more easily. So let's say I just have a lot of averse tendencies or whatever. And then I say, well, I'm going to try to awaken to anger as an object. Let's say something like road rage. Take a, like a gross example. Road rage. Um, 
driving along and then someone takes their parking spot and, and the upwelling of r- anger is very, very strong. But now, you know, they've seen themselves make fool of themselves and obviously get shot in the head because they went down in Hampshire and someone pulled a gun on them or something <laughs> in the States. <laughs> and I, No, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to work on road rage. Road rage has still come up, but you know, oh, this, is, this is the rage in the body. This is anger. Then the road rage doesn't get fed. Which isn't a criticism of it, it's an awareness of it. And then the intention there is not to be born into that, not to be reborn into that, because that's how rebirth works, isn't it? Someone, someone takes my parking spot, and then I, that's my parking spot, and then there's the rebirth of rage and anger. And I say, no. And I just, with, no, I'm not going there, I'm not going there, I'm staying with this. And then slowly that can fall away. So there's so many ways that can take place, but just like the consequences of of of, of a, an overly possessive or greedy or collecting kind of mind can be jealousy or envy or wanting more and more. Anger also has its consequences. An angry angry type person has certain social and inner inner consequences. So the the antidote to um, anger is always compassion, kindness. And uh, kindness not as a substitute, but as a way of letting go. So I feel angry for having gotten angry, say. And then, no, no, that's not going to work. Say, oh, may I be free from anger. That works. May I be free from anger. So you're still making intentions, but they're not highly self-critical. And for the greed person, good contemplation is death. Yeah, just figure, you know, is, is, what if I die tomorrow? One more pen. <laughs> then they then they just have to start again next lifetime. <laughs> for the this is teaching for those who have little dust in their eyes. My voice is slowly failing, but I think I'll make it. I, th- I think I've got two years of voice left, and then I'm going to have a tablet. I'll just point. <laughs> Like the silent Baba in India. <laughs> the deluded mind. So, so these are the pairings again. The, the greed mind, non-greed mind, anger mind, non-anger mind. Deluded mind, non-deluded mind. The text kind of um, had, had the, the analogy or metaphors like someone who's just caught up in a net. Just can't move. Doubt, confusion, fear... These are different ways that uh, that arises a deluded mind, not knowing the way things are. So something like uh, like fear is an interesting one because fear has been one of the major teachers for me, and yet in the texts I never quite find it. I find doubt, I find anger, but there's so little mention about fear. I'm always surprised because that's my that has been my big kind of source of suffering, and hence also source of insight. Interesting. So maybe that's under delusion. Certainly, I was deluded. You know, like things like um, uh, self-consciousness, say, um, uh, thinking people don't like me, or or um, uh, self-doubt. Can I do this? Can I not do this? These are very, very. Um, it's like a net, isn't it? Just kind of. Well, it's like seaweed all your over your brain. <laughs> choking your brain out, taking all the oxygen. I just like to say self-consciousness. Say some, 
I often talk about it's like some monks put the robe on they love it I just I hated it I hated walking around the streets in this brown robe right even though I knew it was a noble endeavor and people said bunte 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 still walking around Chicago airport I felt like a fish in a tree <laughs> so, but that's that was my kama something I had to learn from and that was a very con- kind of confused feeling what could I do what could I now it's not my fault is it? I could have disrobed and gotten brown jeans, but, but no one would have fed me anymore. Oh, maybe it still fed me. <laughs> I didn't want to do that because I wanted to understand fear. I want to understand. So it seemed to me it was more, 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 more profitable for me to look at that state of mind, and if my life brought that up, great, as long as it's not threatening. So as I, as I like to tell that, that I remember that one time I was in Chicago airport. This is early on. I don't this now I'm really cool. I'm fine. <laughs> There's no problem. But that's early years. I I remember being in Chicago airport. It was like a zoo of people. And I just felt, whoa, am I self conscious? No one's noticing me. They're all rushing around to work. So I just there was a newspaper. I grabbed the newspaper and sat like <laughs> totally fearful. Now, is that my fault? No. That's kama for some reason. For some reason, that's the kama. That's the way this mind has been conditioned. It's neither right nor wrong. And when does it become suffering? It becomes suffering when it cannot be aware of it. And why, why, cannot I, why can I not be aware of it? Because I don't want it. And why do I not want it? Because it's darn uncomfortable. Right? Darn, it's much nicer just to sit in a chair in my room and read about Buddhism. <laughs> Or listen to a MP3, a Dharma talk on fear. It's much nicer. <laughs> but to be in the midst of it is not comfortable. So craving arises, desire arises. Doubt, doubt is, um, is more, doubt has less energy, doesn't it? Doubt is more, more thinking, thinking. People who, um, who, who sometimes in our tradition, uh, monks will take the rules very fundamentally, shall we say, kind of take the rules on like, you know, really hard and um, uh, inflexible way. This is the way it is and not that way, only this way. And they're very hard to live with, actually. And they're usually very doubtful people. And they need, they need that kind of strong, strong line. It's this way or not. To, to to not have doubt come up, but they never get beyond doubt. They use they use the rules sometimes in the wrong way. And we call that silabata paramasa or or superstition or belief in rites and rituals. So the comfort comes from an external boundary, but it doesn't come from understanding doubt. This is a, a difficult state of mind. So doubt is like not being sure. Not being sure, and and there's nothing wrong with doubt. But when does it become suffering? Become suffering when I always want clarity. Sometimes I can't have clarity. That comes especially like I suppose, like if you've got kids, you know, and and uh, they come they come home with blue hair and a mohawk, right? And they got this funny smell on their breath. Say, so, oh, where are they going? And that must just drive. I, I've never had kids, but I must drive you crazy just with worry, the unknown, doubt. Where is it going? What to do? Well, 
shave their head. I don't know <laughs> what to do. Well, first and foremost, oh, this is fear, or this is doubt, or this is worry. To come to that, certainly socially one has to resolve it, but also to not think that the future can be resolved, that the future is always unknown, isn't it? You're never, never quite sure. You're never quite sure. Someone does one's utmost best. But if you do that, if you do your utmost best, and then work with doubt. So like, like starting a monastery. Well, lots of times I thought, what am I doing? I'm 65 in another monastery? You must be crazy. <laughs> so a lot of doubt came up. You know, like, oh, I should, I should could have gone back to Thailand or be nice and comfy, no responsibilities. And is anyone going to come here? Will they feed me? No. <laughs> but I, you know, some strong doubts came up. Was this a was this an appropriate place? Is it too far from urban centers? Are there enough people? And and even though rationally everything is working fine, it's never been a problem. We're 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 doing great yet. The doubting mind could pick up the theme of the unknown and run with it into a brick wall of suffering. And that's because I, I, I wasn't aware of the doubt. You know, I'd pick it up with thought and I'd say, yeah, 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 maybe. Oh, no. And then the maybe go, you know how maybes go. Yeah, sure, maybe. We used to have a phrase in our home, if your mother had wheels, she'd be a bus. <laughs> Never mind, that's... that's <laughs> If, 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 right? And that's the negative mind, the worrying mind, the doubtful mind can certainly do that. It, it, you can create all the most hor- horrid possibilities. And if the mind, like so my mind, because it has a, a tendency towards fear, it also has a tendency towards worry, and then less emotional, but also to- towards doubt. You can see they're all... They're kind of cousins, aren't they? They're kind of cousins. So I've got to be very, very mindful of that. And even though I understand that, you give me the right kind of conditions and I can I can um, almost lose the plot. I have enough friends that say, that's just your thinking, Viridum. Oh, thank you. But So that's strong conditioning in me. So the mind that doesn't know doubt, I have to look at that too. Oh, there's no doubt here. And not just to, to, to like not just to take its opposite of confidence. So that there's a difference between feeling doubtful, feeling super confident, and having neither. This confidence is, gives you a lot of inspiration, doesn't it? Yes, we're all you know, everyone's here and like if, if half the me- monks leave next year, okay, I'm not gonna feel as confident as I do right now. <laughs> and I'll have more work to do. <laughs> but confidence is the is the like when we have doubt we have the desire for confidence. So when we feel confident, now I know, now I'm sure, right? But the trouble is, if you attach to confidence, then confidence, its nature is to change. It's anicca dukkanatta. It has to change by definition. And if I've attached to confidence because it's nice, it's pleasant, then when the doubt comes up, ah, oh, not again. I thought I had that one sauced. But you're not trying to suss anything as you see that confidence arises and ceases, doubt arises and ceases. And then you begin to see the mind which doesn't know, or has no position about the future. It's just this way now. And you begin to appreciate not knowing and not being sure. Ajahn Chah, not sure. But now it's not just a kind of Buddhist catchword. You know, it's more like, oh, not sure. Your life is always not sure. 
and you come to a kind of peacefulness of mind. Because confidence, what it does for me, confidence, yeah, it's really going well. I got these good monks, and I don't have to go to morning chanting. And <laughs> it's great, you know. That's confidence with ego on top of it, with self thinking, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'll pay the price if I follow that. I'll pay the price that when the doubt comes up, oh no, no, don't go, please, please, don't leave. Anoma, don't leave me. <laughs> and the monk leaves, and then I have doubt. And thought will pick that up. So thought does that, doesn't it? It picks up confidence and runs with it, and that's a good feeling. It picks up doubt and runs with that, and that's a depressed feeling. But what if I don't think about either one? What if I know, oh, confidence feels this way? Then it's no big deal. It's just confidence. It comes and it goes. Oh, yeah, okay. But you steady now, steady viradhamma, neutral, upeka, and this is equanimity. And the mind starts to doubt, uh, steady, steady, with the thoughts, back to center, equanimity. So you're training in equanimity, and equanimity is very, very peaceful. And so the teachings of, like, like Lumpa Liam, he's, he's, he's profoundly uh, equanimous man, he's just, just stunning how centered and, and still, without the need to project into the future, it's, it's wonderful to see. Uh, without the need to figure out. Um, so, with doubt or with fear, we have to, it seems to me, we have to, we have to bear the unpleasantness of not knowing. If we bear the unpleasantness of not knowing, emotionally, intellectually, you know, we can, we can have ideas, and financially, you have to do things, you have to plan for your pension, I think, right? That's what you guys do. <laughs> you do pensions. <laughs> Or whatever. So I'm, I'm not dismissing planning. I'm just saying that emotional part, which doesn't know, not sure, uh, to just begin to know it as an object. Confidence is an object. Doubt is an object. And find the place that's, that doesn't know but knows. That's the, that's the kind of curious. I don't know what the future is, but I, I do know that things are this way now. And that's where the real liberation lies. So those are the, th- the six around uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed, hatred, delusion, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion are the sort of roots of suffering that we say. So we say an arahant is uh, totally free from greed, hatred, and delusion. So there's different different levels of that. Um, The other, I won't run on to the others too much, but the other, I've just noted them down, the contracted, the contemplative knows the contracted mind is the contracted mind and the distracted mind is the distracted mind. So from Venerable Analio's analysis of that, contracted is sleepy. Dull. Contracted. And distracted mind is restless mind. So that, that's referring to our, our meditative um, skills. So if I'm, if I'm contracted, my, and, you, and you know, like sleepiness really contracts your hara, your chest, you're all kind of down without any energy. And the distracted mind, just like, when is this going to end, and what should I do, and da, 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 da. So, knowing that. So, knowing the sleepy mind is not so easy. And knowing the distracted mind is not so easy. I can be distracted, that's easy. And I can be sleepy, that's easy. But to actually know, this is the dull mind, and not buy into it, and this is the distracted mind, not to buy into it. And that's training. And that's what the training you have to learn. So, if you if you tend to be a very distracted person... Just sitting for five minutes is a huge step. Huge step, yeah. But you, you kind of do it. You just stay put, you stay put, and you stay put, and the mind mind can settle down. Then the then there's a, a pairing with the great mind 
and the narrow mind, and in that analysis, the Venerable Analia was suggesting the Brahmaviharas. And some of our meditations, we, we have these ideas of boundlessness. So we take the idea of compassion, and we say, uh, may all beings to the west, may all beings to the north, may all beings to the east, may all beings to the south, may all beings above, may all beings below, boundlessly may all beings be free from suffering. Boundlessness, so sense of grandness, and 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 uh, or akasa meditations, uh, space meditations. They have no boundary. You imagine there's a space in the room, but the space in the room actually isn't limited by the walls. And it's not limited by Ontario. And some people have a good facility for that kind of boundlessness. Okay? And then the narrow mind. The narrow mind is sometimes a mind which is just focused on one very, very small thing, like you could be on the breath. You know, like a kind of narrow focus. Some people like abroad. And th- this I think I've found in, in meditation. Some people find narrow focus on breath. They don't like it. They find they're controlling the breath too much. Some people like the sound of silence or akasa or space or boundlessness. They, they have a mind which looks up at the stars and feels very peaceful. Looks across the ocean feels very, very peaceful. And and quite often the, the, the person who likes a lot of focus doesn't like to do that. So there's different ways to meditate, different ways to meditate. Basic thing is we're trying to stay in the present moment. The surpassable mind is unsur- and the unsurpassable mind. So there's different ways of looking at that. He talks about Anvenabalio from the suttas and commentaries like different levels of concentration. Um, but also you can see different levels of limitation. So whatever whatever you've constructed is going to fall away. Whatever you've you've built up in meditation is going to fall away. So you can you can you, as you get experience in meditation, you get a sense of the mind being calm. But you know, yeah, you've gotten the mind calmer before. You can go beyond that, and and you have a kind of sense of experience around that. The concentrated mind is the uh, concentrated, and the unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated. And these are all talking about ways of focus where we develop deeper and deeper focus through the different types of meditation. And then the liberated mind is liberated and the unliberated mind is unliberated. You can take that as a finality or you can take it uh, in kind of a... You know, like, like, like when my mind is really... understands fear, say. And I got... like I, I mean, I talk a lot because it's been something I've learned a lot from... I really feel confident with fear now, if you know what I mean. doesn't mean it doesn't come up, but there's a lot of confidence around. So I feel I'm, I don't want to make claims, but it's like there's some liberation around fear, if you, if you see what I mean. And, and for all of us, we have that, don't we? Have, you know, there's some states of mind, which you've, you've seen that so many times. I know you, Mara, but Mara still comes and says, hello, <laughs> but you're not freaked out by it. You know, so so even in the midst of these different kinds of things we have, we have a sense: no, no, there is refuge. There's a confidence. There is the knowing. Uh, there is the path. I know how to do this, and that's important. Not to just think because you are re-experiencing some condition which you had, which you tend to have that that's bad. No, it's just karma. So kind of bringing a sense of. That, that just the knowing is a kind of liberation. Fear is fear, anger is anger, worry is worry. Yeah? And then there's levels of liberation, obviously. So for the arahant, these things might not arise. But, but to, not, to not 
think that because you feel these things that there's something wrong. That's very important. Not not to think that your practice isn't good because you feel nervous about giving a talk or not to think that your practice is bad because you want another pen or whatever it is. It's not wrong. It's just the way it is. But then what intentions do I make from that point? What intentions? So so the the path is always one of kind of kindness and 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 um not being too demanding and yet being diligent. You're doing both. Doing both is very, very important. All right, sort of roughly covered some of those. So let's stop there for now.